Normally I preach a, uh, you know, a 30-ish minute sermon. I just want to preach a, just a, a shortened, I have just a shortened message this morning, a, a short homily. I don't want to be before you long, but I've chosen a passage of scripture in Luke 17, and it's a passage about 10 lepers. Luke 17, 11 through 19. It's just a short story. This is the word of God. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus that is, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifting up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Father, we pray now briefly that you would powerfully move through the preaching of your word and illuminate it to our hearts. Convict us, O God. Convince us. May we be moved by its truth and encouraged by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, you know, it's been said that a pastor's job is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. Jesus was a master at this. He was a master at troubling people who were comfortable and complacent. And he got into hot water a lot for upsetting the status quo because the status quo makes you feel comfortable. The way things are, you've adjusted, you've learned to deal with them, and you don't want people shaking up the apple cart. Well, that's what Jesus did. And Jesus would specifically target people who saw themselves as righteous and exalt themselves because of it. The Pharisee and the tax collector is a perfect example of this. He tells the story of a Pharisee who is very happy about his righteousness. He's very proud about his religiosity. And of course, Jesus points out a tax collector, someone who is despised, is actually being more faithful and religious than the Pharisee. It wasn't that Jesus thought tax collectors were special, but he was highlighting the behavior of an outsider to draw special attention to the deficiency in those that consider themselves righteous. In other words, you're so proud, but even this tax collector is showing you up in your faith. Jesus did that a lot. 
And you could see how it would make people mad. It's a common trope in the Gospels. The Gospel writers were wont to point this out over and over, whether it was the extravagant worship of a prostitute who washed Jesus' feet with her tears in the presence of a Pharisee, or a good Samaritan who behaved more mercifully and compassionately than a Levite or a priest who showed no pity whatsoever to a man who was lying on the side of the road, beaten nearly half to death. And Jewish hearers of these stories in Jesus' time would have had two responses to Jesus sort of lifting up and highlighting these outsiders, whether they were foreigners or prostitutes or tax collectors, people who were on the outside of the sort of religious elite. And their responses would have been, one, to be convicted of their sins and convicted of their own apathy and move to repentance and realize, wow, these people who I think are outsiders are behaving more faithfully than me. Or the other response would have been to be utterly incensed that Jesus would have the nerve to point to sinners as examples and models of righteous behavior. One is a response of humility, and the other is a response of pride. In fact, you could say that the division in the New Testament between those who receive God's mercy and those who do not is the difference between the humble and the proud. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is a thing in the Bible over and over again. And here's the takeaway so far. The righteous are not always humble and sinners are not always proud. The people of God, the people who sort of represent the way of faithfulness and righteousness are not always humble. And people who are known for being sinful are not always proud. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, God's mercy falls out often accordingly. The people who think they're religious and are proud of their religiosity, God sort of stiff arms. But the people who are sinful and, are, and know they're sinful and are humble, God embraces. Now the story of the ten lepers is another one of these examples of Jesus challenging the status quo. It's a challenge to the complacency of those who would presume on the grace of God. In the story, Jesus is traveling along the borderlands between Samaria and Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus is from, and the border is Samaria, where the Samaritans are. And for those of you that don't know, today there are still Samaritans. There's about 500 of them in Israel. They're a unique group of people. They're not exactly Jews, and they're not exactly not Jews either. They're the result of kingdoms, pagan empires invading the northern part of Israel and infusing into their 
you know, sort of population outsiders, and Jews interbred with non-Jews, like Assyrians and things like that, and they became sort of despised by, you know, pure-blooded Jews, and then they themselves in turn despised the pure-blooded Jews. Samaritans believed in the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but rejected the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And they also rejected Jerusalem as the place where the temple should be, and they believed that Samaria was the capital where God dwelt, a place called Mount Gerizim. And Jesus walks close along the border, and he encounters ten lepers, and their leprosy makes them ritually impure. They're outcasts. They're not sort of welcome into, if you can, if I can sort of update it, it would be like us today saying anybody with a physical malady, uh, you stay out in the parking lot when we have church, right? I mean, that, that's kind of rough. And so they were ritually impure. Now, leprosy meant a lot of different things. It, it was kind of a, a catch-all word for all kinds of physical, physical maladies, but they were lepers, Okay. And they cry out to Jesus for mercy, and they ask him to have mercy and to pity them. And Jesus simply tells them, you know, go and show yourself to the priests. And they all obey. And on their journey, as they're going, they all, all ten of them, experience miraculous, supernatural, divine healing. Every one of them, all ten of them. It says, as they went, they were healed. And one of them, one of the ten, as he sees what happens, I mean, it's a weird thing. Think about it. Put yourself in the scenario. This sort of prophet says, go to the priests, and as you're walk, going your way to some local synagogue or temple, to have the priests verify you are ritually pure, because that's what that was about, you notice that you've been healed along the way. And of all ten of them, one of them thinks, you know, let me turn back to show some gratitude. I mean, he's genuinely filled with worship. Gratitude, thanks. And he turns back and gives glory to God, it says, and he falls at Jesus' feet, and he gives thanks. Some of us know this story, and we're like, yeah, the one leper, yeah, you know, one of them. But I just want to focus on Jesus' response. And it's Jesus' response that I think challenges our understanding of God's grace. Because when the leper returns, Jesus doesn't say, not at all. Don't mention it. No, it's really fine. No, seriously, it's no big deal. Hey, I'm just happy that you're happy. Right? Or, hey, that's what grace is. You know, no strings attached. You don't have to thank me. That is not what Jesus does. And Jesus' response is actually quite telling. And it's kind of surprising. He's disappointed. 
He's upset and a little annoyed. We don't think of Jesus that way, right? Jesus meek and mild. But Jesus, the prophet of God, is annoyed. And he's disappointed. He says, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? That's me, you know, inserting some emotional, you know. But I, it had to be something like that. You know, it wasn't robotic. It was, hey, where are the others? Only one of you had the decency to turn back and say thank you? This is, I mean, Jesus, is, this is the real Jesus, okay? He was annoyed. He was disappointed. He implies that the others, no less healed, were definitely less grateful. They were less thankful. And this is not okay. Verse 18, he says, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this outsider? Implying that the other lepers were Jews. They should have known better, right? Here's this guy, he's a Samaritan. He's someone who the rest think are, well, surely, you know, Samaritans don't have it right. You know, their theology is all messed up, right? But Jesus is, you know, want to point this out. Really? You know, my countrymen, they don't have the decency to give God praise, but this outsider, this foreigner, this Samaritan? There's a couple takeaways for us this morning. The first takeaway is Luke's theme of the universal outreach of the gospel. In other words, the, the gospel is reaching out to people on the margins, people outside the conventional or traditional community of faith, the faithful, right? Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, and even foreigners. We may take that for granted now as sort of modern-day people, that that's what the gospel of Jesus is all about, living in the 21st century, but that was not an axiom in the first century. So that's the first takeaway. People on the margins of society, people who are undeserving sinners and enemies of God are being saved and healed and touched. The second takeaway is this. Gratitude ought to bring us back to God. Gratitude brings us back to God. When we're tempted to take our blessings and move on and forget God, a heart filled with gratitude keeps us close. And if we find ourselves drifting from God, it is possible that we have lost the heart of gratitude. We have lost the heart of thanksgiving. Show me someone thankful with a genuinely grateful heart, and I'll show you someone close to God. Gratitude brings us back to God. And this is hard because we feel often um, we, can take the, we can take the grace of God for granted. I mean, it certainly feels to me that we're living in the most ungrateful generation of my lifetime. I mean, I, I, it, 
you know, maybe I'm just like a curmudgeon or something. I don't know. But I, I feel like, like people are really ungrateful nowadays. Um, you know, it's, it's like the first thing you do when you, when you, you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to get too, too close here, but like, the popular thing to do, it seems like, the minute you become of age, is to say, it's all my parents' fault. You know, everything wrong with me, it's their fault. You know, and sort of devour or turn on the people who have done so much for you, right? Um, and we're like that also with, with everything in our day today. It might be because as a culture we're entitled. It might be because we're living in the most prosperous sort of, you know, society that has ever existed. And we just assume that all these wonderful things we have are ours by right. I don't know, I'm not really sure. But it feels like we're living in a very ungrateful time in world history. People are just ungrateful, which is ironic because we have so much. We have more, it seems like, than anyone has ever had. Isn't that interesting how never knowing lack, so to speak, doesn't make you more grateful, it makes you less grateful. Never going without, suffering very little does not make you happier or more grateful, it sort of makes you, you know, gives you ingratitude. Now this isn't exactly the point of the text, but I wonder if there is a lesson we can take away from all of this about suffering and the suffering in our lives and the necessary aspect of hardship and trials and tribulations that we all experience. Most importantly, gratitude glorifies God. This is the most important thing. Gratitude glorifies God. It's hard for the devil to steal your joy when you're grateful. Show me someone falling away from the faith and I'll show you someone who has become ungrateful. And so Thanksgiving is an exercise in giving God glory. What other holiday can we think of that's built on recognizing the things we're grateful for? I can't think of any. Perhaps the other lepers didn't return because, well, maybe they thought God owed it to them. Healing was theirs by right. But the one who returns to worship Jesus knows he's been given something he has no claim to. I think that's important for us as we think about why we should be grateful and thankful. It's first to recognize that we've received something that we don't have a claim to. We don't have a claim to the mercy of God. We receive the mercy of God as a gift. We don't really have a claim to it as if God owes it to us to do anything for us. You know, links between gratitude and brain structures also tie social bonding, reward, and stress relief to Thanksgiving. Other studies have bolstered these findings, and they've revealed connections between, you know, the tendency to feel grateful and a chemical called oxytocin that promotes social ties. And research on gratitude has also found 
associations with other health benefits, like in uh, a general sense of well-being, better sleep, more generosity, and less depression. G.K. Chesterton said, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Henry Ward Beecher said, gratitude is the fairest blossom which springs from the soul. And Karl Barth said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. This Thanksgiving in a couple days from now, when you're sitting around the table with three, four, five, ten people, I guess that's the limit, I don't know. Some of you might break the rules. Find a moment to say, what are we thankful for? Let's go around this table. Foster it. You be the one. You be the one to do it. You be the one to create a moment where you forced everyone there to glorify God. And before you show up, you think about the things you're thankful for. Thanksgiving is an exercise in glorifying God. And so this year, amidst all the social restrictions and uncertainty about the future, may you resist the temptation to complain. May you resist the temptation to be ungrateful. May you not join in the cacophony of complainers. But glorify God. Think back on the things that God has done and is doing for you right now, even in the midst of suffering or trials. And grab a hold of those pieces, those slices of thanks, and don't let them go. Hold them close. Be thankful. Because Thanksgiving, for us as Christians, is not a holiday, it's a way of life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, and even though we know we're supposed to give thanks in all things, we, are, we rarely do that. We rarely make the self-disciplined effort to find things to be grateful and thankful for, even amidst the hardship of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would infuse our hearts with such an effusive joy that it pours out of us and radiates outward to others. And that in that gratitude and thanksgiving and in that glorifying of you, Lord, we would witness to the goodness of God. That we would lift up and exalt the risen Lord Jesus who saved us. You save us from our sins. And you are here with us even now in all of your resurrection power ready to save. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.